0: Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and moved closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Good morning. Hi, friends. Uh, I've been really jazzed about uh, the passage this morning, which you, you may not have been when you heard Lisa reading it a minute ago. Uh, I told Jordan I've got, there's at least two or three sermons in here I want to do. Fortunately for all of you, I'm only doing one of them today. So um, I, I think one of the reasons that I love this passage is it, it highlights one of my favorite things about Jesus in the Gospels. One second, this doesn't want to cooperate with me. There we go. Um, It highlights one of my favorite things about Jesus in the Gospels, and that's that he seems to spend, and this is especially prominent in Luke, he seems to spend a lot of his ministry going around, showing up, and, like, making things awkward, like, making people uncomfortable. Um, And we see this all the time. It's like he's hanging out with people he's not supposed to hang out with, the Gentiles, the sinners, the tax collectors. He's healing people on the Sabbath, which is a no-no. He's touching people who are diseased, who are richly unclean, questioning the establishment, the religion. And then we have a passage like this morning's in Luke 14, and today I really just want to focus on the first couple verses of our passage, so I'm going to reread it for all of you just to help it kind of settle in. So in verse 25, Luke 14, it says, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So here, what I love about this is it says Jesus has great crowds accompanying him. Like, great crowds are following him and listening to him. They're eager to hear what he has to say. And it's like, instead of telling them something they want to hear, hey, following me will make your life better. It'll make you wealthier, more fulfilled, or prosperous, or whatever. He says, oh, no, no, actually, you need to hate your family and your own self if you want to follow me. And it's one of those moments in Scripture where you're like, ah, really, Jesus? Like, sure you wanted to say that? You're, you're not going to build a megachurch with a message like that? And, uh, but he doubles down. Like, can you imagine being in that place where it's like you have this crowd of people around you, and, like, this is a thing you have to say? Like, I, I, I worked in marketing for a year or two after college, and, like, rule number one of marketing is you tell people what's in it for them. Jesus doesn't care about telling people what's in it for them. He would be a terrible marketer. He's too busy telling them what they need, not what they want. And in this case, he's saying, well, what you need is to hate your family, bear your cross, and follow me. It's a terrible way to move product. Um, but if we dig in a little further and we kind of get past the initial awkwardness, We arrive at the genius of what Jesus is actually doing here. And that's that, you know, at first blush, these words seem harsh, and and they are. They're issuing a really strong challenge. But at the same time, underneath, there's this, like, radically simple and liberating and and empowering message about what it means to live a life oriented around Christ. So I want to get to that part this morning, but let's let's start with, like, the guts of what Jesus is saying. We can kind of distill it down into a few things. He says, well, in order to be a disciple... You need to hate your family, your own life, brother, sister, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Uh, and then you need to bear your cross and follow me. So I just want to unwind this piece by piece this morning. Let's start with the disciple part. What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean for a first century Jew to be a disciple? I always like learning a new word on a Sunday morning, so the word this week is mathetes, that's Greek for uh, disciple, and it's usually translated as a learner or a pupil, uh, but interestingly the root word it comes from also implies like learning uh, through the process of use and practice, kind of a learning by doing, being in the habit of doing something. So it points to this distinction between disciples and what we think of today as students, and that's that disciples really aimed to model their entire lives after their master, after their teacher, the person that they were following. They were following in that person's footsteps and adopting their message as their own. It's like a lifelong devotion to the cause of their teacher, and then sharing that message with others. So, a bit about the teachers. Um, So, in in Jesus' time, this was before what we now know as rabbinic Judaism was in in full swing. Uh, But you did have a concept um, of rabbi, which was a word that was often used for a teacher, but also just as a general title of respect. Uh, But what you really had were scribes. They were kind of the precursors to rabbis in many ways. And scribes, they were among the most educated people in Jewish society. Uh, They knew the law inside and out they were really respected they were given positions of honor they were invited to feast people like gathered to hear them teach to be a scribe was to be it was kind of a big deal and if you wanted to be a disciple to one of these scribes if you wanted to follow them you would actually go through a process of like applying like like it's college or something like you would apply sometimes there would even be a fee like you would apply and pay a fee and then the teacher would determine whether you were worthy to be their disciple Uh, So the status quo is that a a teacher is qualified and a student is qualified. And then we have Jesus showing up and making things awkward. He's an unqualified rabbi with unqualified followers. And, uh, I mean, he doesn't have, like, a formal education in this stuff, right? He was not educated as a scribe. He just seems to indiscriminately, like, Call followers. I mean, a lot of these guys were like fishermen, also not super educated. And like to make things worse, he called them. Like they didn't even have to apply, they were just drafted. That's not how it was supposed to work either. And uh, despite his apparent lack of qualification, his disciples dropped everything immediately, it says in scripture, to follow him. There was clearly something so compelling, so moving, and motivating. About the authority with which Jesus was teaching and the contents of what he was saying, that people were willing to drop everything and follow him. And it wasn't just the disciples. Uh, in John seven, we read it says the Jews marveled, saying, "How is it this man has learning when he's never studied? Like what's going on with that?" There was something about the authority with which Jesus taught that just didn't compute, didn't didn't make sense. And the Pharisees sense something different, too. We hear about the scribes and the Pharisees mentioned together often in Scripture. It's because most Pharisees were educated as scribes, so you can understand how a Pharisee might feel perplexed, maybe a bit uncomfortable, or even threatened by this Jesus guy who hasn't paid his dues, who hasn't done his studying, who shows up, is breaking all these traditions, teaching with some authority that, from their perspective, he doesn't have, and kind of bringing people along with him. You could see how that would make them a little bit uncomfortable. So Jesus, the unqualified rabbi, shows up, and and he doesn't just say, come be my disciples. That would have been awkward enough. Instead, he ratchets the awkwardness up to the next level and has this whole thing about hating your father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters in your own life. So let's focus on that part a little bit. Hate your family. We'll we'll get the obvious question out of the way first. Do I need to hate my family? No, of course not. This is really clear from Scripture. Second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. One of the commandments is about honoring your father and mother. Jesus always talking about loving others. He even tells us to love our enemies for goodness sake. So clearly, hate your family is not the the direct thing we're supposed to take away here. Uh, I think one scholar sums it up really nicely in saying that hate here, it's not an absolute term. It's a relative one. And if you look at some other translations, um, it's instructive. The New Living Translation says, If you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. I really like in Peterson's The Message at the end, this is actually, I think, verse 33, he uh, translates it as, Simply put, if you're not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether plans or people, and kiss it goodbye, you can't be my disciple. Now, there's certainly something to be said here for the fact that at times following Christ may indeed require you to te- take a step away from your family in faith in following Christ. This is something that happens all the time. We see families getting broken in situations like this, but there's something much bigger I think that's going on here too. If if you think about what family meant in Jewish culture, especially in Jesus' time before kind of this rabbi-disciple model was like really deeply entrenched. Like the the law was taught primarily within the confines of a family. So usually you were learning from your family about the way God has called you to live and how to be righteous and live a life that's holy. Your life's work typically came from your family. You would, you know, apprentice yourself to to your father or whatever and be a, a carpenter, a fisherman, whatever your family was doing. And it also, your family represented all of your most important relationships. Um, a lot, there was a lot of like extended family that would live together, so these families often would be blended and intergenerational, so a lot of your life's most significant relationships are represented by family. So there's a sense in which Jesus telling his followers to hate their family is, is so much bigger. He's, he's telling them, forget, forget every religious authority that you've ever known. Forget all of your most important relationships. Forget what, whatever significance you derive from your own work. Forget your identity completely and follow me. That's what it takes to be my disciple. So that brings us to the next part of the passage, the harder part, the part that uh, maybe you'd prefer to ignore, that I would sometimes prefer to ignore, where Jesus says, you must bear your cross and come after me bear your cross. We tend to kind of trivialize this as a euphemism nowadays, don't we? Like, oh, I'm out of oat milk again. I got to go to Whole Foods, but it's my cross to bear, right? But this is obviously not what it meant to the listeners in Jesus' time. I mean, to bear your cross had, had a very literal, very terrifying, very visceral meaning. To bear your cross is not to, like, endure some trial. It was to put yourself to death. Maybe it'd be analogous to Jesus saying something like, "Hey, if you want to be my follower, you need to submit yourself to death row." Right? This—it's like a one-way ticket to losing everything. We talk a lot about death in church. Um, sometimes about physical death, but more often we talk about other types of death. Uh, in his book *The Cross of Christ*, John Stott observes that Paul writes in his letters of three different types of deaths and resurrections. Uh, one is physical death talks about death to sin, which is more of a one-time event as we're united with Christ and brought into a new life with him. And then there's also death to self, self-denial. This is not a one-time event. This is something we have to practice daily in our walk with Jesus. So Jesus was not just talking about physical death when he says, "Bear your cross and follow me. Sure, that was part of it. Some of his followers were martyred, but his call is so universal. He says, if anyone if anyone wants to be my disciple. Clearly, there's there's a more universal application for us here. By calling us to bear our cross, Jesus is asking us to die to sin and to ourselves every day and forgetting what we thought our identity was and taking on the identity that we've already been given in Christ. Now, letting go of this vision of our identity is not something we're super comfortable with, is it? Especially in Western culture. We really don't like it when someone else has a plan for us, when someone else has an agenda, so much so that that word agenda has, like, evolved to somehow carry a negative connotation, like you turn on the news or scroll in your Facebook feed, and it's, all of a sudden, it's like the evangelical agenda, right? The gay agenda, the anti-abortion agenda, the liberal media agenda, whatever it is. And I think it all boils down to this really, really simple, rudimentary fact that, we don't like it when someone else tells us what to do, even if that person is God. And this goes all the way back to the fall, doesn't it? Adam, Adam and Eve were not interested in God's agenda for their life. They, they had their own agenda. They had it all worked out. Have, have you ever thought, though, about how short-sighted that is? Like, we're talking about the infinite creator of the universe, the alpha, the omega, this, this being that exists like outside of space and time comes to us, these, these like little tiny inconsequential creatures, and he says, you, like Luke, you, I know the plans I have for you, plans for a future and a hope. And we say, uh, no, thank God, it's good, I got this, right? Like, when, like, uh, We, we tend to wake up every morning and we think to ourselves, it's not thy will be done, it's my will be done, right? Our, the narrative in our head is not what would you have me do, it's what can you do for me? And it, it's not uh, how, what tools have you given me to use? It's like, no, God, how can I use you as my tool? It's not your ways are higher than my ways, it's my way or the highway. That's our mentality. Where in the Gospels... Did Jesus ever say, hey, what about my rights? No, he humbled himself to the point of death. So to truly die to sin and to truly die to ourselves and to truly follow him as disciples, we need to loosen our grip on our plans for our own life. We need to be willing to give up control, no matter how painful that might be. And it can be painful, but Jesus never told us it wouldn't be. It's just that it doesn't mean that sacrifice that we're making is in vain, just like Jesus's wasn't. Speaking of pain, I went on a run the other day, um, and for some reason it's my preferred form of exercise, even in the 90-degree heat. And there's this funny thing that happens to me when I run where sometimes I'll be capable of experiencing uh, both pain and also this sense of hope, like... My legs will be bursting with pain, and my heart will be bursting with hope. What's with that? The, uh, the writer and uh, runner, Haruki Murakami, wrote this beautiful meditative memoir called uh, What I Talk About When I Talk About Running. And in it, he makes an observation about pain that caught my attention. He says, "'Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Say you're running and you think, "'Man, this hurts. I can't take it anymore. "'The hurt part is an unavoidable reality.'" Whether or not you can stand anymore is up to the runner himself. Now, I don't think I have quite the same definition as he does of pain versus suffering. I don't think I would phrase it that way, but I appreciate the sentiment of what he's getting at, the idea that there are times in our life where pain is an inevitability. It's going to be there. And then, in the midst of that pain, there will sometimes be this ability to access hope. And it's not always apparent but it's there. It's absolutely there. And I think that the thing that keeps us going in those moments is not our own sheer willpower. I think it's something much deeper than that. Like for me, when I run is when I encounter God. I'll be pushing through the pain, exhausted and tired, and I'll come to this like sudden awareness of God's presence My eyes will be open to the fact that he's been with me there all along. And there'll be these times where everything gets quiet, and it's just me and God and my breath and my footsteps and Def Leppard or whatever classic rock is playing in my headphones while I'm running. And I'll feel that the Spirit is there and the Spirit is moving. And sometimes the words of St. Patrick's Prayer will come to me, Christ beside me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ within me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me. I'll be in these moments pushing through this pain, coming to the very end of myself, and suddenly I come to this awareness that this big, wide, beautiful world is simply drenched in God's presence. And that there is no amount of pain, no amount of hardship that I can endure that's apart from Jesus. Now, it's easy for this to sound trite because we don't always feel his presence in moments of pain, do we? But the point is simply that he promises to be there, even if we don't feel it. For example, think think about some of the ways we talk about death in baptism. Have you heard our liturgy for baptism? If you were here earlier this summer when Jordan uh, baptized the Hodges girls, for example, you, you would have heard him say, Thank you, Father, for the water of baptism. In it, we are buried with Christ in his death. In Romans 6, we read, Did you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Colossians 3.3, You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Where is Christ located in all of these passages? In the death. Like, he's in the death. It's not oh, you die and you're buried and that's a bummer. But the good news is on the other side, there's Jesus and resurrection and everything is great in the end. No, no, no. Jesus is already there from the beginning in the death. In any time of death, whether it's physical death or death to sin or death to yourself, Jesus is there. That means that like when when you're going about your week and you're struggling to die to your own sin, whether you're closing that browser tab or putting down that drink or lowering your voice or choosing words of love over words of fear, in any moment where you're dying to yourself or even failing to die to yourself, Christ is there. The Spirit is present. And that highlights the beautiful almost hilarious simplicity of what Jesus is actually calling us to here. Like, really, what this all funnels down to is Jesus asking us to do two things. He says we need to follow him and die. Robert, for our cape, describes it this way. He says the scandal of the passion is that the one ticket everybody has is the only ticket anybody needs. And to be raised up into the new creation, we don't need to be good, holy, smart, accountable, or even faithful. We need only to be dead to our sins to ourselves. Now, I promised you... Um, well, actually, park that. Side note. You might be thinking that this whole dying-to-yourself business sounds terrible, right? Because pain aside, like, doesn't that mean that somehow you essentially cease to exist? Your personality vanishes, so you become some, some Jesus-following robot by taking on his identity? We're all the same. Jesus says... Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I promised you that Jesus' message here was not challenging, just challenging, but it was also hopeful and liberating, and this is the reason why. Think about what this means. By losing your life, you find it. It's pointing to this paradox that you need to be willing to die in order to truly become yourself. Our culture is so worried about finding our own identity, digging down deep, discovering who you really are, but what if the answer to securing your true identity was simply to abandon yours completely and take on Christ? At the end of Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis reflects on how we more truly become ourselves once we get out of our own way. And he says, he says this, he says, well, Christ will indeed give you a real personality, but you must not go to him for the sake of that. As long as your own personality is what you're bothering about, you're not going to him at all. The very first step is to try to forget about the self altogether. Your real self, your new self, will not come as long as you're looking for it. It will come as long as you're looking for him. And Lewis compares the effect of Christ on our identity and personality to that of salt on food. Why do we put salt on food? We don't put salt on food to make the food taste different. We put salt on food to make it taste more like itself, to bring out its flavor, to bring out its essence, and that's what Christ's identity does to us. It makes us more like ourselves than we've ever been before. Fellow disciples, as we strive to follow in Jesus' footsteps toward the cross, do you see how empowering this is? Challenging, yes, but also empowering. Viewed through this lens, dying to yourself actually places value on the person God made you to be. That means that no matter how you've fallen short, no matter how many times you've tried and failed to die to yourself, no matter how many ways you've messed up, you still have such vast worth in god's eyes you don't need god because you're worthless you need him because your worth is so great that it would break his heart to see it go to waste and if you open yourself up to him if you cede control of your life warts and all and rest in god he promises to restore you like like a work of precious art back to your original glory He says you were fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God as his child. And if you turn your life over to Jesus, if you are willing to die to your sin and die to yourself and go through that pain, he promises to return you back to that person that you were originally made to be in the first place. He promises to reveal to you your true identity. You don't have to go finding it on your own. And he promises to restore you to beauty and goodness and righteousness and wholeness. Father, we ask that you soften our hearts this morning. That you open our eyes to the ways in which we've refused to humble ourselves. In which we've refused to release our identity to you. Lord, we desire to sit at your feet as disciples. To model our life after yours. Give us the courage to follow you into our own death, the assurance that you'll be right by our side and the hope that you will restore us to wholeness, that you'll make us more like ourselves than we've ever been. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.